0: In Revelation 22, even though the Holy Spirit provided him with the wherewithal to communicate the beauties of heaven, when all of God's singers finally get home. You know, the great thing about all of God's singers getting home, and I appreciate Eric picking these great songs out as we talk about this idea of a failure to boast, where we talk about heaven, where we talk about the focus being on God, is that all of us will be uh, accomplished singers in heaven. We may not be real accomplished, uh, although this is a congregation of very good singers, but our singing will be a hundred times better in heaven with all the redeemed and the angels that praise our God. Of course, it's for us to be pure in heart in order for that to transpire, and indeed we will stand on Zion's glorious summit. And praise our God together. Have you ever stopped, and I'm sure that you have, to picture what heaven will look like? We think about it, we sing about it, we talk about it, we even read about it in passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where our focus is this evening, and certainly in passages like the book of Revelation, where it gives us a picture of what heaven looks like. But in many ways, it seems to me that it is impossible to describe really how wonderful it will truly be. And we may have those conversations among ourselves from time to time about how beautiful heaven must be, as we even sing. And then when we get there, we may turn to each other and say, this is far more beautiful than I would have ever imagined in the first place, because that's the nature of the presence of God. Our brother Jason talked about this a couple of weeks ago. When he talked about the various reasons why heaven will be so wonderful, and one of the reasons, in fact, the primary reason it is so beautiful is not because of the streets or the the gates or because of even the people who inhabit it, but because of the God who rules there and who rules on earth as well. And that's what we boast in. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 together. The subtitle is the idea of Paul, who is the author, along with the Holy Spirit, and the idea of focusing on God. If there was ever anybody besides Jesus Christ who had the opportunity to take advantage of his accomplishments and say, look at me it's all about me, and do so in a very prideful, proud way, I think Paul fits the bill. I mean, here's a man who wrote half the New Testament. Here's someone that was transformed by God's grace and his own obedience from being a murderer who was consenting to the death of even Stephen, the great preacher of Acts chapter 7, to being this great apostle that we refer to so many different times. And as been said before, God, through Paul, shows us that he can take anybody in any circumstance and turn them into one of his servants. And a case in point for that is not only Paul, but the people that we interact with who sometimes will argue, I'm just not, uh, I'm just not good enough for God to accept me. I always go back to the Apostle Paul and say, if he can work in Paul's life and make him who he was ended up being he can take your life no matter how sorted its background and make it better as well. well I wanna read those six verses and these six verses precede a more familiar part of the text because you're likely familiar with verses seven toward the end of the chapter where he talks about his famous thorn in the flesh and that's a good sermon, uh, that's a good study, that's not the focus, it's prior to that what Paul has to say. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. And we know what boasting means. In fact, when we're going to look at some word usages here, the word boast means to glory in something or to vaunt, often without good reason. I'm boasting in my accomplishments when I haven't accomplished anything. Or even if I have accomplished, I need to give the glory back to God in the first place. He says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then he goes on and he says in this language that even Brian talked about this past Wednesday evening, if I recall correctly. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Such a one was called up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. How he was called up into paradise, And heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to speak or a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I'll not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And then he launches into the second part of that paragraph or argument to say, to buffet me, to ground me, to keep me humble. One of the key things that we're gonna talk about not only tonight, but Lord willing, next Sunday morning, is the idea that a thorn in the flesh was delivered to him, a messenger from Satan himself. The word boast or boasting, as David Creech and I were talking about this a little bit uh, in uh, the outset of our worship service this morning, appears on numerous occasions in the New Testament, depending on the version from which you're reading, somewhere around uh, 44 different times. And of the 44 times that it is used, I think, I think that we learn a lot by counting. You know I like counting. Uh, but I think by looking at this, we learn something about the character of the Apostle Paul, in that all but four instances are used by the Apostle Paul, which goes back to the argument that I started with, that if there's anyone that could have boasted and said, look at me and all I've accomplished and all the good that I've done and all the people I've baptized, in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he goes to great lengths to say, I'm glad I didn't baptize so many of you, because I don't want the focus to be on me. And you may find it interesting that of the 40 instances by the Apostle Paul, 29 of those. So basically 75% used in the two letters written to the church at Corinth. Now we know that there was a third, a preceding letter, it seems, to the church at Corinth at the very least because he makes reference to the previous communication in 1 Corinthians. And so I wonder if in that letter that he talked about boasting as well. Or maybe he talks more about boasting as the letters develop. If you know the character of the church at Corinth, you can understand why that may very well be the case. Paul stresses, however, caution in regard to his own boasting, saying it's not about me. He is truly a man of humility, as we'll talk about, even as a witness to heaven and in talking about things that are indescribable. And it's those three aspects that I want to talk about for just a few moments together tonight. And we are blessed tonight with individuals who have a lot of Bible knowledge and who have read 2 Corinthians chapter 12 numerous times in their lives. At the same time, we have individuals who may be here who say, I don't even know what you're talking about when you talk about 2 Corinthians. Is, is, that, a, is that a person? Is Corinthians the name of a man? Uh, is that just a f- fancy title given to someone? No, it's a group of people who lived in the city of Corinth in ancient Greece some 2,000 years ago. And this church was a very important church because it was located in a very important part of the world. But I often think about the church at Corinth. Anytime I teach 1st or 2nd Corinthians, and Jason's doing a good job with that, as do all of our Bible class teachers, I always think about a circle. And I think about a circle within the circle. And the outer circle is the culture of Greece. The inner circle is the church at Corinth, which is trying to keep up some walls against that society. And that's challenging for all of us to live in a world but not be of the world. We've got to live in this society and interact with people and try to get them to appreciate the truth and uh, allow us to open the doors that Caleb prayed about at the outset of our services to uh, this evening, but not be influenced and allow them to distract us or keep us from the job that we are supposed to be doing. I want to look at three quick observations. Number one is that Paul reminds me in his failure to boast about himself that humility is the key to a Christian's life. Someone once said I was going to uh, accept the award for being the most humble man but the moment I accepted it they take it back away from me and that's true humility is a funny thing because if we talk about how humble we are we very very we very well are proving that we are probably not humble so we lead quiet and peaceable lives as the apostle Paul would say it becomes clear As you drop down in the text that Paul's man, it seems, though there may be some debate about this, and I go back to Brian's comment Wednesday evening, that it is himself. Uh, I am of the uh, mindset that the man whom Paul is talking about is himself. Though, if you said, I think it's someone else, I wouldn't argue with you. I'd say that that, you may be right. One of us is right and one of us is wrong, and we may both be wrong. on That may be someone that you don't even anticipate. But it seems to me that verses seven, eight, nine, and 10 highlight back to the fact, and the reason that he talks in this third person is because he's wanting to deflect the glory from himself. He says, I'm not trying to vaunt myself and see myself as important, but rather I want the, the, the message to be important. And that's something that is true for all who preach the gospel, for all who teach classes, and for all who interact with others. It cannot be about ourselves. You may water, someone else may plant, but it is God ultimately, 1 Corinthians 3, that gives the increase. And so it's not a matter of, well, uh, this person baptized this many people and this person only baptized uh, so many people. That's not the point, and you understand that that's not what it is about. In verse 3, he uses a phrase in the New King James Version. He says, and I know such a man. And he seems to then identify himself in the next couple of verses, along with verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, which helps us to appreciate that he wants to avoid what we call foolish talk. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and chapter 5, he says, avoid foolish disputes that are of no uh, good, that help in no one uh, and, and in no one's journey to be a part of the church or to be a part of the kingdom of God. He still puts the focus on God, wanting it to be not about himself. You know, there are uh, virtually every occasion, and you are a very good and kind congregation, but virtually every occasion wherein David or I or another preacher preaches uh, or one of our men preach on the Thursday, you are all very gracious to say you did a good job, you put that material together well, uh, and you say these nice things. And that's great, and we need that, and that's, you need to say that because preachers need to be supported and Bible teachers need to be commended for their efforts, but ultimately it's not about what we have done, it's about the idea of what we have said, and it's about not our abilities, but it's the message. We are merely messengers who are doing our very best to communicate that in a tangible and easy-to-understand method and way. Even after what I would call this experience of being caught up into the third heaven, and we'll talk about that here on our second observation, God still wanted to make sure that Paul remained humble. And I said we weren't going to really talk about verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. I'm going to assume that you are likely familiar with the stake in the flesh that's S T S T A K E for those of us that like to eat steak. Uh, that's the, the thorn in the flesh that he speaks about. And he says in verse seven, in the very first sentence, lest I should be exalted above measure. It seems to me that God knew Paul and knows us well and is willing and able to do whatever is necessary in order for us to keep the perspective. And this is a message for all of us, And this is certainly a message for those of us that preach. I was actually thinking about this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks and couple of months, actually a number of years. It all kind of blends together as you get older. But we've got to be careful as preachers, David, me, and others, that we don't get caught up into a political power move within the kingdom work. What do I mean by that is, how many meetings do you have? What churches have you preached at? Oh, you preach there those kinds of things because sometimes there's a tendency even among us who preach to we hear those good comments which we need and which we are appreciative of and we think well it's all about me it's all about the good that i've done and that's not the case at all so if you want to walk out tonight not say a single thing to me good i hope you don't say anything really bad or mean but just don't say anything good i'll take that as a comment but now you're going to compliment me for that so either way i'm kind of stuck with it right but I appreciate that. David appreciates that. But it's not about us. It is about the message that we are delivering. That's true with our Bible class teachers. That's true with you when you're having a one-on-one conversation with one of your neighbors or your friends or your coworkers and, you, and someone says, you've done a really great job on teaching them, I'm using good material. That's, that's a great line to always respond to. I've got great material with which to work, and that makes all the difference. Paul here stresses incredible caution in regard to his own boasting. And you'll notice that 44 times in the New Testament, 40 used by Paul, 29 in the Corinthians letters, and four times just in this very brief text by my count no fewer than four times where he talks about boasting. But what is he boasting about? Or what is he not boasting about, we should say? And that is the fact that he seems to have been a witness to, in the New King James Version, the word paradise is used, which maybe harkens back to Luke 23, or is just another word that he's using here for the idea of how beautiful heaven really must be and how beautiful it really was and how beautiful it will always be. Even without all the bragging or boasting, Paul was focused on God and not himself. And he was focused on heaven because that was the place that it seems as if he's been able to get a glimpse. It's like the curtains have been pulled back and he's been able to see heaven. We talk about how beautiful heaven must be when all of God's singers get home and on God's glorious summit, we can stand one day, but we've not seen it. We've not experienced it. But if God were to privilege you with three minutes in heaven, say so I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you 180 seconds. Look around, walk around, go wherever you want, take whatever path you want, look and see what it looks like, and then you come back. There's a part of you that may, just maybe, wants to say, out of the seven and a half, eight billion people in the world, he let me see it. And you may not say that, but you may be thinking it because that's an an incredible privilege. But Paul says, it's not about me. I will boast in Jesus the Christ. I will preach him and him crucified and only him in the gospel. He writes that to the church at Galatia. He writes that to the church at Corinth on a number of different occasions. It seems to me that there is an honest mystery or ambiguity of Paul was the opposite of confident boasting. I think that's why he uses the phrase, I do not know. I think he's using it in a couple of different ways. I don't think it's that Paul doesn't know, no. I just think he's saying, I don't know saying, it's not about me. He's deflecting. He's saying, it's not about the, the good that I have done, nor the good that I'm going to do. Because you recall here that how many years earlier had this happened? 14 years. And Paul is getting older as the letters get older, of course. And so this happened presumably relatively early in his ministry and in his life. And so what do we know, though, about the third heaven as it is referenced here? I wanted to take just a moment to talk about that because you may run into someone who says, I don't understand what you mean by the third heaven. I thought there was only one heaven where where God lives. And that's that's true. God is in heaven. When all of God's singers get home, when we all get to heaven uh, on Zion's glorious summit, we sing these songs about heaven. And there seems to be three different heavens as illustrated and agreed to by biblical and even some other ancient sources that are spoken of. One of those is the idea of the air around us. We'll even say, look up in the heavens. Well, we say we're not looking up in multiple heavens where God dwells. We're looking up into the sky where the clouds are and where the birds fly and where all the things happen around us. We could even say that today we are blessed as we prayed with rain and it's coming down from the heavens. You could say it's come down from heaven. Yes, you could argue that as well, but you understand in a very literal sense, in an atmospheric point of view, it's come down from the heavens. Heaven number two seems to be outer space. Genesis chapter 1, Psalm chapter 19, we won't take the time to read those particular passages, talk about where the stars are set. And we live in a time and have now for almost a hundred years where men and women can go up into space, though they cannot go into heaven, number three, which is the heaven that is God's home, the dwelling place of God. And I want to spend just maybe three to five minutes looking at just a couple of passages that I think help us to understand God's dwelling place. And we'll look at these from Matthew to Revelation. We'll look at four passages in real quick succession. The first of those is in Matthew chapter six in that great sermon on the mountaintop. And you probably know where I'm going here. And this is not a study of the model prayer, what some refer to as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. But he says, in this manner, therefore, pray. And he says, and sometimes we, we, we forget about the details of this because we get caught up in just the overall message of verses 9 through 13. He says, our Father in heaven. Is is our Father in the clouds and in, in the atmosphere around us? Is he in space or is he in heaven? We well, say, well, he's in all of them, and I and I, I understand what you mean by that, and I, I would, I, I would agree. You got me, but we're talking about God in heaven, in His eternal dwelling place, where He has been forever. Now, what does it mean by forever? It means forever. It means eternity. How do I understand that? I'm going to confess to you, I don't. I am not smart enough to figure out eternity. And my guess is, is you would say, I, I can't wrap my brain around that either. The idea of there not being a beginning and there not being an end, I can maybe with biblical knowledge and with spiritual experience begin to understand the idea of no end, though that's really hard to, to get wrap my brain around. But the idea of no beginning, that's just, that's hard to understand. So I don't understand that. Uh, And maybe someone else is capable of of putting that uh, into into a way that uh, Is more understandable. I recall a number of years ago. Someone said imagine when you think about eternity imagine an ant so an ant is less than a a tenth of an inch and Imagine the ant who is going to take all of the earth on earth all the dirt on earth and transport it to Mars. And so the so the ant picks up a piece of dirt and a debris of the earth, takes it to Mars. I'm not sure how long that would take. It'd be an awful long time. He's not going on a spaceship. He's just he's just walking this imaginary road. And then he walks back, picks up another little speck of dust, dirt, and he keeps doing that back and forth, back and forth, until the entirety of all the earth, of all the dirt, of everything that is here on this globe is moved to Mars. And that's equal to the first minute of eternity. That's just like mind blowing to me when I first heard that. And as our brother Jason pointed out today, our 80 to 90 to 100 years if we're blessed Maybe a few hundred or maybe a few more than a hundred uh, is a speck in all of eternity. These are things that are really hard to wrap our brains around. But when we speak to our Father in heaven, we are speaking to someone, to something, the being, the spirit because he is not flesh like David talked about this morning, that we speak to, that we address in the book of john the gospel of john chapter 12 and verse 28 there's a a similar uh, statement that is made or, or a similar point that we're going to make father glorify your name and a voice came down from heaven i have been glorified i have both glorified it and will glorify it again where did that voice come from you said, well it came from the sky well yeah, but it came from heaven. It came from God himself. And it seems that Paul and John were pseudo witnesses of this. And I say pseudo in the sense that I don't know how much they saw. And I am convinced as now we wrap towards a close. And as I begin that it is really impossible to communicate how great heaven is, how beautiful heaven is. Must be is the song that we sing in reference to I can't imagine what it's going to look like because my God is there in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, a passage that I referenced just a few weeks ago in one of our studies in Colossians chapter one in verse five. It says because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, our hope is not on earth. And that's one of the points that has been made today already again. And if you are only focused on this life and this earth, you've missed it. Someone once said and said a number of different times, if you've missed heaven, you've missed it all, right? And that's true because that's all that there is. Then that's all that matters. And then Revelation chapter 21, we read Revelation chapter 22, and David did a good job of reading that a few moments ago. But if you back up just a a chapter in that second to last chapter, he says, I saw a new heaven. I saw a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. It seems to me that the evidence which is exclusive in its nature is that god's home would have gone to some people's heads if you had had the opportunity to go there but not to paul and i think that's the big point that we're getting point number one is paul's humility matters number two is witnessing heaven is really spectacular which leads us to the third observation, and that is, it truly is indescribable, unable to uh, communicate these things in a in an effective manner. I I, I can imagine Paul. I'm taking a little bit of. Uh, leniency here i can imagine paul writing second corinthians chapter 12 or john writing the book of revelation and talking about how beautiful heaven must be or how beautiful heaven was and the limited view that they may have had of it and 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 taking their and saying no, that's, that's not good enough this is how beautiful heaven is no, that's, that's still not good enough until the paper was torn in two because there's too many erasure marks <laughs> because there's no way to really describe how beautiful heaven must be because it's that wonderful And it seems to me that even if Paul did want to boast, fully describing anything related to our Lord is absolutely impossible. In verse 4 of our anchor text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the words that Paul heard were, quote, inexpressible, not lawful for a man to utter. And if you look at that, you can say, well, wait a minute, what what made it illegal for him to utter those words? Well, that's where it kind of helps to understand the the nature of the language that Paul was employing in that literally not being possible for a man to speak. I don't think it's a matter of Paul was going to get in trouble by God if he said, well, this is really what heaven is like. I think Paul's saying, here's what heaven is like. It's that great, and, and I think the Holy Spirit uses things. I don't, I don't know if there are streets of gold. I don't I don't know that there are mansions. Someone once said, "I I don't care about the mansion. I'll I'll stay in the broom closet as long as I'm in heaven near my God. I don't I don't care if I have a bed or not. Get the point? Heaven is surely worth it all. And John would be the one who recorded his own earthly, or I'm sorry, heavenly experience. Because even the observable things of Christ on earth were impossible to record. Remember what John 21 says, and I find it interesting that John's the one who writes the book of Revelation by way of the Holy Spirit, and that John and the Gospel of John ends by saying, if I were to say everything about Jesus and everything about heaven and everything about the Lord, there's no way that the books on earth uh, could uh, contain all that information because it's just that mind-blowing and that great. That's the God that we serve. That's the heaven in which he dwells. And that's the place that you and I are hoping for. I want to look at just one or two final passages here. The first of those is in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. The book of Revelation, uh, chapter 1 and verse 10, reads this. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as the sound of a trumpet. I I wonder if, again, John wrote those words and then said, I just wish I could communicate how truly awesome it really was. And I've said before from this pulpit and other places that we use the word awesome in, in very interesting ways. Sometimes I'm not suggesting that it's, that it's poor to do so, uh, but you want to talk about something that's really awesome is being in the presence of God. Something that's really uh, just beyond comparison and without the ability to make it to, to voice it it's got to be being in heaven paul john both lacked it seemed to me a full capacity or full ability to completely and fully communicate what they witnessed i i there's some conjecture here of course but i i just see paul struggling to say you can't imagine how wonderful it is going to be and I'm suppose and a little bit of conjecture that even Paul and John as witnesses to these heavenly things would say we still didn't see the tenth of it or the hundredth of it or the millionth of it because of how beautiful it really was and will be and always will be the fact of the matter is is as we conclude Paul failed to boast. I put that in quotes because there's no failure on the part of Paul. He succeeded in keeping the focus where it needed to be. And the lesson for us and the application and the invitation for us is that being like Paul and more importantly, being like Jesus Christ enables us to see and to live in heaven for eternity. I don't know what it's going to look like. And I don't know if there are literal streets of gold and gates of pearl. And don't misunderstand me when I say this, but that doesn't really matter to me. I don't care if the streets are dirt. We're going to be in a great place. And you have the opportunity to be there in a place that Paul references and speaks so highly of. And we hope that you'll make the commitment to do that this evening. If you are here and you are not one of God's children, what does that mean? That means you've never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It means you've not repented yet as Brother Caleb led us in prayer. You've got to have a penitent heart that say, you know what? I've, I've lived my life in ways that just were not appropriate. And you may say, well, I'm not a horrible person. But if you're not giving glory to God and not doing what he has asked you to do, then you're not doing what he has asked you to do. And that's what we're imploring you to do tonight. Maybe you want to study further about those things. We'd be glad to sit down and to talk with you, not because we are special but because God has made us ambassadors, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for his purpose to share this message with you, just as much as someone shared it with us years back. If you are a Christian not living correctly, need to make some sort of correction tonight, or you solicit the prayers of the brethren, we'd be glad to pray for you and with you. If we can help you in any way, let us know while we stand and while we sing.